Well, this series that we're in, this is the last Sunday. Next Sunday, we start a new series called um, Selfless. Um, less, less me. <laughs> um, the idea of what's it look like for us to live selfless lives. And um, before we get to that, we have one last week as we look at this series we've been calling Christmas Letters. This is kind of a PS, a postscript to Christmas. And so I've been reading to you many Christmas letters that kids have written to Santa um, as a way to kind of intro most of these messages. And so I have read, I don't know, I've spent, looked at dozens of websites and read hundreds of letters to Santa. And so this week I thought, well, I should probably see, like, this is the the P.S., the postscript, there's probably thank you letters to Santa, right? If Santa sent people what they wanted, um, there really are not, by the way. Uh, you can buy a template, though, if you want. Um, if you want to buy a template to thank Santa, those are out there. You can purchase them. Um, but I couldn't find a bunch of letters from kids thanking Santa for what they received. But kids are like you and I. They're slow to say thank you. Now, I don't know if we mean to be that way. Maybe it's because you opened socks again for Christmas, Although I got really cool socks, and I don't even mind showing you. I have monsters on my socks. Um, I, these are for my kids, so I, if you just ask, I could probably show you monster socks every day now, um, and I can show you those. So maybe you didn't get monster socks, you just got plain white ones. That's a bummer. Uh, you know, or plain black. That stinks too. I mean, you know, you just got the normal ones, so you didn't say thank you because you didn't want more socks. Or maybe you got the obligatory, you know, Christmas pajamas, and you got them because you had to take the obligatory family photos you could put on Facebook, and so you did that, and so you didn't, weren't excited because you knew there was one more picture you had to take. Or maybe you got exactly what you expected to get for Christmas, and so you were not excited because you knew you should, were going to get it, and so you got it, and it's what should have happened. Whatever the case may be, there are not very many thank yous to Santa out there. The good news for us today is Christmas really isn't about Santa. It's about Jesus. And so the question you and I are left to respond with is, how will we respond to the idea, if Jesus was real, which there's no question that he was real, but if he really is the Son of God, what does that mean for our life and how will we respond? And what does the birth narrative mean? And so last week there was a line I used again and again, I'll use it just to start today, that God came to us, as us, for us. God came to us as one of us, for us, so that we could know that God was present with us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of a pain and sorrow in our life, that God is near. That was the point of the birth of Jesus, to enter into a new way that God desired to be among us and with us. But if the birth of Jesus brings us hope and love and joy and peace and the very things we talk about during the Advent season, the Christmas season, if that's true, then what should our life look like? There's a line that I've been thinking about this week, and this line is simple, that we are what we do and say. We are what we do and say. In fact, um, I, I don't know how to say that more succinctly than that, because I think sometimes we, we really are thankful, but people can't tell because our words don't reflect it, our attitude doesn't reflect it, our behavior doesn't reflect it. We go, I, I was thankful, but nothing in our actions or our words express that thankfulness. But but at the end of the day, the truth is, if we think it, it doesn't make it true. We are what we do and say. And so it seemed to us that people who are followers of Jesus as they celebrate Christmas, it should look a little different because we should begin to look like Jesus. But for many of us, we're not really sure how to do that. 
we're not even sure that's who Jesus actually is. I mean, we hear people talk about him. We know he was maybe a good teacher that existed a long time ago. We hear people talk about doing all kinds of stuff because of who Jesus is. But at the end of the day, we're not necessarily sure what impacts our daily life. But I want to say this today. I believe there would be something radically alluring about people who actually live and follow and love like Jesus does. In fact, I think if more people who claim to be followers of Jesus lived in the ways of Jesus, others would want to be like them too. In fact, I, I believe that so much that I want to give my life to that. And some of you have made that same kind of commitment that you want to do that as well. And there's a particular guy named Paul. And Paul was a Jew. And Paul was like the Jew of all Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was a person who knew all the laws. He knew everything the Old Testament said. He had it all memorized. He was the kind of person that, that like, took his Bible everywhere he went. I mean, there are scrolls, but still. He knew everything that was in them. He knew what they said. He knew how you were supposed to apply it to his life. And then this guy, Jesus, came along and began saying all kinds of stuff that basically said, yeah, that's all okay, but here's what I now say, and so most of that is now over because I'm the fulfillment of all of that. And so Paul, who had given his life to these scriptures, said, that's garbage. This guy's full of it. See, Paul was a person who, he walked the walk and talked the talk of what he said he believed. And Paul believed it so much so that he then dedicated his life after the death and resurrection of Jesus to trying to put away to minimize, to eradicate this idea that people want to be followers of Jesus who was the one who came to save all of humanity. He said that was just not true. God only came for the Jews, and so he was going to spend his life getting rid of this message of Jesus. Paul was having Christians arrested. He was going from community to community, having them arrested or executed. He was zealous. And then Paul had this encounter with Jesus. And this encounter turned his life upside down. And the same zealousness that Paul had to be against the movement of God through the person of Jesus, it flipped 180 degrees. And Paul became maybe the greatest follower of Jesus the world has ever known. I mean, Paul became such a great follower of Jesus that he was in this meeting with all the other disciples. And I don't know if this is how it went, but I think it's a good example of how it could have gone. They were in this meeting and they gathered around and they had the map of the known world up on the wall. And Jerusalem had in the center because that's where they were. And so they said, Paul said, hey guys, this is the map of the world. And the disciples go, yep. And he goes, I tell you what, here's how we should do this. Because the words of Jesus said, go and make disciples in, in all the world and all the nations. And so here's what I think should happen. You guys see this Jerusalem, this little circle right around this? Like, yep, yep. You guys take that, all 11 of you, plus Matthias, so the 12 of you take this area, and I'll take the rest. Because that's actually what happened. Paul took the rest of the known world, and the disciples pretty much stayed in Jerusalem. Paul, this person zealous against the work of God through Jesus, became the first kind of real missionary to change the world. See, Paul embraced that choosing to follow Jesus changes us not just for eternity, but it changes us now. This is part of what makes the birth of Jesus so real to us. It actually happened in history. I mean, if I were to take you through the letters of Paul chronologically and show you 
kind of the growth in Paul's life, you can see in his writings even the change in him as a person. I mean, the central message of what he said over and over again about who Jesus was, that, that really didn't change. See, Paul's life was radically changed in an instant, but there was this growth that happened in his life. You see it in his writings. You see the way he changed, the way he was softened in some areas. You see the way he, he was not softened in other areas. You see kind of this humility that begins to take place in him. You begin to see this transformation of this guy's life in the writings of the New Testament. And so Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. And we're going to look at it in just a moment. It will be in Colossians chapter 3. And Paul wrote this letter to the church while he was in prison. Paul wrote this as a prisoner. And so as a prisoner, he writes these words from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. I'll invite you to stand as I read these together. Colossians 3, 12 to 17 say this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there's a story of this master carpenter and... um, he, he was an incredible builder, and he built all these houses. And, and so he built houses for most of his adult life, and finally he was just kind of tired of building houses, and he worked for this guy, and, and he would just keep producing more, and, and there were always more houses to build. And, and he was really good, so he was well sought after. And, and so his, his boss kept having him build more and more houses, and one of them done more and more rapidly, and they were done with such high level of craftsmanship that, that many people wanted him to build their house. And finally, the guy went to his, his boss and said, I, I want to retire. I know I've got a couple of houses left on my contract, but I, I just want to be done. And his boss says, I tell you what, will you, I've got this one really good spot left. It's right on this lake. I mean, it wasn't like Michigan because it'd be really expensive, but, but I've got this one really nice spot left for this little lake, and, and would you build the house right there for me? So just the last one. Builder said, sure, I'll do that. And so as he started building this house and he'd bring in the different contractors at different times, he kind of resented that he had one more house to go. He resented that his boss, after all these years, wouldn't let him out of this one last house. And so he took a bunch of shortcuts that he never would have done years before. I mean, like you're supposed to have like walls straight and you plumb line them and he, he didn't do that. Um, he kind of shoddy workmanship where he normally he would have been great with all the woodworking, he just kind of threw it up there. The crown molding, he didn't really do that. I mean, all the stuff that he did in every one of his houses he was known for. He, where he should have bought copper pipes, he bought cheap plastic. Where he should have bought the plastic, he, he didn't. I mean, he just, everything he could do to cut corners, he cut corners to get done quicker. And it wasn't good, and he knew it, but he was just glad to be done. And so when he finished this house, it was the worst work he'd ever done in his entire career. He went to his boss and he said, okay, uh, here's the keys, the house is done. 
And the guy goes, hang on, I got something for you. And he pulls out an envelope, and he says, here. What? And the guy goes, what's this? He said, well, here's the deed to this house. As a thank you for your work for all these years and the amount of money you've made me, this house and this property is yours. That guy's thinking in his head, oh, that was dumb. <laughs> I got paid to build this bad house for myself. But see, I think that's kind of how life is for all of us. What we build is what we're stuck with. Our life is really like a house in so many ways. What we build is what we determines what we have at the end of the day. And so it's why I said earlier, and I'll say again now, we are what we do and say. If we say we're a follower of Jesus, it should begin to define our lives. And so Paul is writing to this church in Colossae. Most of Paul's writings are to whole churches. That's why it says you, plural, most of the time. Um, And so he writes to to people and he says you, God's holy, chosen people. He uses language here that had been reserved for the nation of Israel. And he writes it to a Gentile church saying, hey, by the way, God meant for all people in all places, in all situations, to be his people. You, you all, you're God's chosen holy people. And so Paul often wrote to the whole church, but in this moment he's, he takes a little break in the middle of this letter to the church and he says, um, by the way, here's what each of you individually, your life should look like. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life should be defined by these traits because you're called to live in community, in relationship with one another. And so Paul writes what it looked like if you're a follower of Jesus. What are the characteristics that should define your life? And he says this, that you should be compassionate. Compassion should be central to who you are. I mean, I think people forget how revolutionary the words of Paul, coming from the words of Jesus, Paul calls people to mercy in a world where there was no mercy. I mean, the suffering of animals meant nothing to people. Handicapped and weak people were discarded and discredited. There was no provision for the elderly. If you're mentally ill, you were just cast aside. And yet today, all of those things in the world in which we live are considered just intrinsic to life. and They're called what it means to be human, right? We, people talk about, I'm just a humanist, or are these are things that because we're just human. Do you realize in history, before the person of Jesus, no one cared? Like, people didn't care. They'd say, well, it's survival of the fittest. Good for you. It's not too much to say that every time we see compassion happen in some place or shape in the world, to say it stems at some level from Jesus and his church. He calls them to kindness. I mean, I think of the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. If you've done the story, I'll, I'll kind of briefly tell you. Jesus teaching and this woman is brought before all these guys and and they come to stone her and Jesus there in the midst he kneels down and he begins writing in the sand and finally he speaks I see teachers this woman was caught in adultery what what should be done to her our law says to stone her continues to write and then he looks up and he says well I'll tell you what you without sin You cast the first stone. And the story goes that people began leaving the oldest first, recognizing they knew nothing in their life they could say that. And it's just Jesus and this woman. 
And he looks at her and he says, did, did no one condemn you? No, they all laughed. So then I don't condemn you either. And then he has this, he says, but go sin no more. There's something about kindness that says there may be what you deserve, but there's what I'm going to give you. And they're not always the same thing. And then and he says, well, you should also be humble. Paul says you should be humble. And humility is not, not just that I'm, I think less of me. It's that I think of myself less. So this next series is called Selfless, New Year, Less Me. It's starting next week. We'll talk about that. Because sometimes we confuse humility with like lack of self-confidence. That's not humility. In fact, often our insecurity leads us to narcissism, not, not humility. Humility is recognizing that I am intrinsically valued, that I'm a unique creature created in the image of God, that I'm uniquely human, that in that I know who I am because I know whose I am, that I'm God. And so humility says, like, I know I'm ultimately loved by God, but do other people know that? How can I serve others in a way that shows humility? And then, and then Paul says gentleness. Well, we often don't think of gentleness as like a great characteristic. We, we kind of like, oh, oh gentle. Huh. So I'll define it this way. Someone who is so self-controlled because of being God-controlled that anger is always expressed at the right time and never at the wrong time. Like people who blow up get really angry and then tell you they're Christians, that's not like Jesus. Because um, most of the time our blow-ups are not about the sake of others, it's about our own issues and our own shortcomings. And Paul says this, be patient. Patience is like, I, I don't even talk about patience because that's just hard, right? Um, but our patience towards others should be a reflection of God's divine patience towards us. And then he says this, that you should model forgiveness. And how do you model forgiveness? As Christ forgave, as Jesus comes and says, hey, um, I forgive you. To people who are executing him, I forgive you. And this is the call on you and I on our lives if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. Then he says, bear with one another. Bear with the annoying parts of each other. Here's the thing, you annoy me. And I annoy you. And we're both stuck with each other. That's how this works. Like, this is what Paul is trying to say, is like, I, I don't care if you're annoyed by me, or they annoy you, or she annoys you, get over it. Bear with one another. In what way? In love. And then Paul says this, how do you bind all these traits together, all these characteristics, all these virtues, they're bound together in love. Love is what provides the unity that binds all these things together. And this takes us back to the good news of what I talked about earlier. The good news of the birth of Jesus is this, that God came to us, as us, for us. And I'm going to say it a little differently today in this line. I am with you as one of you, so you can be with me like me. Right? This is the hard part about following Jesus. Because he calls us to live like him. It's hard. It's revolutionary. It takes the world the way we think we know and it flips it upside down. And it's why Paul tells us to live with the peace of Christ in us. That the only way we can begin to live this kind of life as followers of Jesus is to live with the kind of peace that is found in him. It's why I think about the, one of the, my favorite lines is that Jesus was most liked 
by the people least like him. In other words, the least religious people like Jesus the most. The most religious people, people Jesus was most like, liked him the least. See, the problem for many of us is we put burdens on one another that we can't ourselves carry. It's one of the problems the church has been really good at over the years is we're really good at telling you what not to do, but not so good at the other. That's why Paul then really reminds us to have good theology, good understanding of who God is, good understanding of the character and nature of God. And he says, so he says this, in our teaching, and our singing, make sure the words that we say match the character and nature of Jesus. I know that some of you, we sing your favorite songs. Some of you don't sing your favorite songs. What I'll tell you is this. We'll always sing songs where the words tell us the right things about who God is. That I will promise you, we'll always do. And if a song comes in that's not, it won't be there again. Like, this is what matters for us. And so, but this last verse that that really just messes with me, and I'm, I'm going to read it here. Verse 17 says this, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed. I'll come back to this in just a moment. Um, I didn't read, and in some ways maybe I should have, verses 5 through 9 and what Paul writes above this. I'm going to read it to you now, but Paul says this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and the greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Um, so I, some scholars were contrasting like those verses 5 through 9 and what we've read in, in 12 through 17 and looking at the ways, the two kind of dichotomies, one way is living how you want to live and one way is living how Christ calls us to live. And so N.T. Wright says these words and summarizing, summarizing this, he says this, self-indulgence and habitual anger and lying may seem like fun for a while, but they destroy you sooner or later, often sooner. Right, there are ways of living, and, and uh, let's be honest, some of what that list is is kind of fun or enjoyable or easy. But it doesn't make it right or good or true. See, I can't help but think this kind of comparing and contrasting the two. If I had to pick living in a community in which the first half, verses 5 through 9, it was either that or the other, I, it's pretty easy to figure out which one I'd eventually pick. It's why I also think this is really important speaking on these texts. Of course, there is a question of balance. Some churches are very concerned to stamp out sexual sin, but seem to ignore the positive things that Paul insists should be put in its place. Kindness, humility, and the rest. Notice how sexual sin, which often disguises itself as love, is a caricature of what real love looks like as sketched in these verses. A church with no obvious sexual sin, but which is full of malicious gossip, has only swapped one evil for another. Equally, a church where everyone is very caring and supportive, but where immorality flourishes unchecked, perhaps precisely because people are afraid to confront it in case they're told they are being unloving, is allowing noxious weeds to grow all around the flowers in the garden. You can't select some parts of the picture and leave others 
For any of the parts to make sense, they all need to be in place. In other words, we are what we do and say. So the question is, how do we get there? How do these characteristics of humility and gentleness and compassion and forgiveness, how do they begin to define our lives? What does it look like for us? I mean, simply by coming to know Jesus more, by listening more to the Holy Spirit that can dwell inside of us, I mean, by, by being shaped by a community, by gathering like this week in and week out and allowing the, the words that we sing, the conversations that we have together by being part of a group in which that happens. Like it's a big way in which we come to know Jesus more, but what would it look like? Imagine, just imagine for a minute what the world might look like if those characteristics began to define our life. Can you imagine what would happen if parents were more gentle? Right, here's what I mean. Um, we've all seen it, that moment. Maybe we've done it. When a parent loses it at their child, not because what the child did was so egregious, but because the parent was embarrassed. We've all seen that. It's way more about the parent than it is the child. I mean, imagine, imagine what it might be with our friends, if we were more gentle and humble, more compassionate and caring. Imagine, imagine what kind of neighbors we might be if we genuinely loved our neighbors. Can you imagine what might happen in our own neighborhoods if we began to do this? Can you imagine what it might look like if, if as employees and employers, humility and gentleness and compassion and kindness and love were the defining virtues of our life? Can you imagine, just, just can you imagine the winsomeness of the church and a world desperately needing to see people who look like Jesus if the people who call themselves followers of Jesus had those characteristics? Imagine what it might look like. There's a psychologist named Eric Erickson who passed away years ago now, but he wrote about eight stages of life. And his last stage, I think, really comes back to this idea, what we mentioned earlier, the story of a master carpenter. Um, the last stage, the eighth stage is this. It's either integrity or despair. And he says all of us get to the eighth stage. All of us get to the last one. All of us get to the stage where we determine, are we going to live a life of integrity or despair at the end? But the problem for all of us is that is determined well before the end. Now, we also believe in a God who can redeem even the end of our life. And so it doesn't mean that if we've been living in despair. um, But what Erickson began to see in all his studies as a psychologist was that people, at the end of their life, they often live out who they have created themselves to be. We are what we do and say. So here's the thing for you and I, is at the end of our life, what is it that's going to define the house that we build? Shoddy workmanship, cutting every corner when we can? Or our life be one that's defined by integrity? The traits and virtues that Paul writes about, that gentleness, kindness, compassion, humility, patience, forgiveness. I mean, how do we get, begin to embrace these characteristics? We know Jesus more. Right, and so I, I talked a little bit last week, and... and um, and it's talking about how, how often we, we misunderstand the scriptures. And so I, um, one of the things I did this week, and, and you can take these as you leave if you want, is I, I think that to know Jesus more means you have to know what Jesus said actually himself. Um, and I think 
I think the truth is the, the whole Bible is good. I'm not saying it's not good, but, but, but the truth is if you're going to have to read just part of it, I want you to read the New Testament and you can ignore the Old. Don't tell people I actually said that out loud. But, but if you're going to do that, because the Old Testament, until we know who Jesus is, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It points to him, but, but if you don't know that, so don't pick up your Bible and start in Genesis. That's like the worst thing we can do. Um, and so, in fact, I, I put together a reading plan. So some of you who, uh, some of you are like, I hate to read. I'm not going to read. Well, here's the deal. It's about as short a reading plan as I can give you. So this reading plan is available at both exits as you leave today. And so, so here's what it looks like. It's 52 weeks of reading. And you're like, oh, that's a lot. Not really. Just bear with me. It's one chapter a day. Except like at the very end, there's like two chapters for a few days. But there's one chapter a day for six days a week. I'm not even asking you to read for seven. What if you only read six? So like you could double up on Sundays, right? I mean, Sunday you could, so my, my kind of dream, <laughs> dream world, is you would take the text from Sunday and you would pray through that throughout the Sunday and so you wouldn't, anyway, um, it's a dream world, right? I can dream for that. But here's what there is. So all of you can take one of these. I'll email it out even later today. If we have your email in, in our system, you'll get an email later today with this information. I'll, it'll be on Facebook. But here's my challenge for you. You would spend this year, this whole year, if you go, I'm not reading the whole Bible or the whole New Testament. It's 290 chapters. That's what it is. And you're like, that's just too much. I'm not going to do it. Okay, well then read Matthew 5 through 7 again and again and again. If you're not going to read the whole thing, just do that at minimum. That's the kind of the minimum requirement, minimum ask. Because that tells you the very character and nature of Jesus in, in the shortest amount of space. So this, this reading plan, and some of you look at it and go, you don't start in Matthew. No, I don't. It starts in John. And in fact, you'll read John twice. you read Matthew twice, and you'll read Mark twice. Because if we're going to say we know who Jesus is, and you're going to say you're a follower of Jesus, because to be Christian, by definition, is to be a follower of Jesus, nothing else. So let's know who he is. At the end of this year, if you, if you do this, you're not even sure you believe in Jesus, I, my, here's my challenge. Read this stuff and then reject it. But don't reject what you don't know. And some of you in this room, maybe you've known Jesus for a long time or you think you have. Double check. Read it again. And I've even, on the front sheet, there's like a list of things for you. I tried to make it as simple as I could. Um, of ways to read scripture, like how to think about it, how to, approach, how to approach it each day, how to pray over it, how to like think through it. If you want more, I've got more. I can talk more. I try to make it short because I know most people ignore everything I ever say anyway. But these traits that Paul writes about, these traits that Paul calls these virtues that should define our lives, they will never define our lives if we don't know who Jesus actually is. They'll never define our lives if we don't understand that Paul writes all throughout the New Testament to people like you and I saying, hey, by the way, if you're going to embrace Jesus, here's what your life should look like. And so this is my challenge for you, that you and I would do this. That's why we're inviting you to pray for 21 days starting next week. It's also why, one line I want to mention I told you I'd come back to verse 17. It's the verse that has haunted me all week long. And probably should haunt you as you leave here today. And haunt may not be the right word. Maybe convict, challenge, encourage, whatever word you want to use there. I don't, I don't really care. But Paul writes this. He basically says, if the activity of our life cannot be ended with, in the name of our Lord Jesus, 
then it's not the life God's calling us to. I'm going to say that again because that, that I've said today, all day, we are what we do and say. What Paul adds here in verse 17 is this. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then every activity of our life, their words and our actions, think about what you do. Mess with me this week too. We say we do in the name of our Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul says this, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then live like it. And if Jesus wouldn't do it, you and I don't get to either. I remember having a conversation with someone in the last couple of years and I said, well, do you think Jesus would do that? Well, I'm not Jesus. No, you're obviously not. <laughs> but he's pretty clear. That's why he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Paul writes all throughout his writings. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then let's embrace the life of Jesus. And if we cannot say in the name of Jesus, our Lord, then we shouldn't do it or say it. And I'm not going to lie to you, that's a pretty high really, really difficult. But I think we come to do that by spending time in the scriptures. By knowing who Jesus is. By gathering weekly here, by being formed as a unique people. It's why Paul writes to a whole community of faith. Because you cannot do this on your own. Right? It's like one of the, one of the, the daily scripture reading tips is to find a partner and talk about this stuff together. Right, because you cannot, I don't care who you are, myself included, you cannot grow as a follower of Jesus on your own. It cannot happen. And if you're not willing to listen to others speak into your life, then you're never going to be like Jesus. And if you're not going to be like Jesus, then don't call yourself a follower of him. Because the world desperately needs people who are followers of Jesus, who are full of gentleness and compassion and mercy and kindness and humility. And it desperately doesn't need more people who say they're Christians and then live anything but like that. It'd be better. It's why, it's why some people are freaking out right now because the studies tell us that the rise of nuns or like no religious affiliation is increasing in America. I'm actually not freaking out because one of the things that's happening is all those people who've kind of were like pseudo-Christian, which it's an oxymoron, you can't be pseudo, you can't be kind of. Like they're all just saying, I'm not. Good. Better to know where we actually stand. Now, do we want them to stay? None? No. We want everyone to know Jesus because we think it changes our life, not just for all eternity, but even here and now, in this moment, if we're defined by the very love of Jesus. So here's what I want us to end with, this one singular line. We are what we do and say